0: Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast about mental resilience, learning from hardship, all to build a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis, and if you could like, follow, or subscribe to the podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. Today, I am joined by Ollie Bell. Now, Ollie is a TV presenter, producer, and podcaster who specializes in all things horse racing, covering major events, including the Grand National, and has worked for Sky Australia, Racing UK and now ITV. Ollie is also the co-founder of the Riding a Dream Academy, an organisation that is supporting talented young riders from diverse communities, underprivileged backgrounds and urban equestrian centres to get involved in British horse racing. And he joins me now. Ollie, mate, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it, mate. No worries. Thank you for, for asking me on. Looking forward to it. Nah, it's going to be good. Right. So we start every podcast the same. How do you define winning in your life?
1: I think there's lots of layers to that. Um, funnily enough, I, I was actually talking to a producer at work the other day about what, I mean, he's, he's relatively young. He's just starting out. He's very, very talented. His name's Tim. And we were talking about what he wants to achieve in, in kind of his career and things like that. And I, I, I'm I convinced he will go right to the top. But we were, talk, we were talking about, like, as I said, what we want to do in the next 10, 20 years. And I, I think winning as a concept, you know, you can you can look at it in quite a sort of, black and white way you know you can make more money you can yeah. get more work whatever it is I don't know however people define it but I think for me I will feel like I've won in my life if I can leave a legacy that enhances the sort of next generation's life basically um so to to me that's how winning looks in my opinion like I don't really need a fast car I don't really need a nice house um I I would rather when I die someone goes he had a very positive impact on his sport on his job not for himself but for the next generation and I think that's possibly why I set up the academy and I think of all the things I've achieved in my career that's the thing I'm proudest of because it it has a very positive impact not on me but on hopefully a lot of youngsters who want to get into the sport of horse racing and and, it enhances their life.
0: I totally agree with what you just said, then, mate. So obviously, been researching you all day, mate, and uh, that academy looks pretty cool. But we'll get onto that later. Yeah. So, roll us. Uh, let's go all the way back to the start, mate. Tell us about your childhood
1: and and sort of growing up. Uh, grew up in uh, where did I grow up? I grew up in not a great start. He doesn't know where he grew up. <laughs> well, initially, we grew, I grew up in Dorset. My parents split up when I was very young. I think I was about three at the time, and uh, my father's side of the family. Uh, were into horse racing. My uncle's a racehorse trainer, my granddad's on dad's side, um, owned a lot of horses and, and had some very good horses growing up. But for, a for a quite a large period of my childhood, I did, did sort of didn't see that side of the family cause lived with Mum in, in Somerset, but I always had a, you know, a real connection and an interest in racing. Um, my mum sort of tells a story that when I was very young, um, would go to sort of kids' parties and everyone sort of running around face painting and whatever, eating skips and cocktail sausages. And I'd be sat in the corner sort of studying the form. And <laughs> she, yeah, I think she thought I had Asperger's because I was like a proper rain man about yeah, horse yeah, racing. Yeah. Um, so, so racing was always something I was very passionate about. But as I say, I sort of looked at my family on my dad's side the racing side of the family from afar really because as I said I didn't see that side of the family me my brother and sister didn't see that side of the family for a few years so actually when I got the job in racing a lot of people have this sort of misconception that I got the job because of my dad or my name or whatever and I'm I'm sure that the knowledge I have of, of racing has definitely come from that but as I say, it's a bit of a misconception that that I, I got the job because of dad because actually weirdly well, I've become very close to that side of the family now but that's almost through me having the job as opposed to the other way around um and I feel very fortunate to to, to be in the position I'm in but um I think for a few years that, that did bother me a bit because no one really knows uh about my childhood and sort of growing up and they just assume that I sort of I come from this sort of big house with horses running around in the garden but you know my my mum sort of didn't have an, an awful lot growing up and she as a single mother raised three kids and you know i'm very grateful for her uh to her for that um but yeah i i think that if people knew sort of my background and my childhood they'd have a probably a a, a different idea in their head of, of what my childhood would have been like but the one thing that i've always had was a love of racing and um fortunate enough to to work in the sport that I love now.
0: You talk about, you know, growing up as a single mum, sorry, with a single mum. Was that tough? Were you like sort of, you know, was that unusual for the school you went to? Or how
1: did that, Could you said there, if people knew more about it. Mm. I think speaking very frankly, is that my father's side of my, of my family had a few quid. They're from, you know, good stock in inverted <laughs> commas, whatever you define that to be. But, you know, they had a few quid. So, so I was fortunate enough that, my granny um who's uh g- was able to sort of pay for us me, and my brother and sister, to go to private school, a good school or whatever again, it depends how you define that but so that was on the dad's side, but I didn't really know that side i mean I knew my my granddad was like the guy that got me into racing properly. I remember when I was very young sitting on a sofa watching racing with him, and you know I really looked up to him. But then I'd say from the age of I don't know say nine to 16 we sort of drifted apart from that side of the family and um, and my mum didn't really have very much right yeah. so you're going to this private school where there's lots of wealthy kids and wealthy parents and they've all got nice cars and whatever and the brand new football boots <laughs> but I not that I didn't have that because I, my mum did an, an amazing job but where I went to school was like four hours away from where I lived. I went to school in Peterborough, I lived in Somerset. And my mates back home, you know, my best mates back home, Simon, Phil, Ryan, you know, th- th- we d- we definitely didn't have much where yeah, we yeah, grew yeah. up, right? So there was this like juxtaposition between like the school you're at and the people you're hanging around with at school and then the people you're hanging around with and what you had at home. Um, and I really like that because I think it's given me the best of both worlds, basically. You know, I understand the value of things I understand like be nice to everyone in your village and yeah, like yeah. you know rally together because you know where we grew up we didn't like I say we didn't have a load so um yeah I feel very fortunate in that sense but again it would be different I think to what people expect or or think about me because yeah. I've never really told anyone that to yes yeah. none of their business but appreciate you opening it <laughs> up like get them no. on the hard questions <laughs> no, straight no. Away. but it's interesting because I feel like it it defined me in many ways growing up there not because like we didn't have very much that didn't define me but the people i hung hung around with there as i say collectively we wouldn't have had loads but they taught me so many good things like be kind to people be polite um the things that really matter yeah, 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 yeah exactly that the the important stuff right you can have a fancy car you can have all this stuff right but fundamentally, it doesn't really mean anything, right? Be nice to your like neighbour, smile, have fun, don't take things for granted, look out for each other. Those things are like, you know, I, I, I really. There's a mate of mine called Simon. He's my best mate um, from growing up, and I would credit him with teaching me a, a bit. To be honest, like, I mean, I think I might have said this to him, but he's a, he's like my sort of adopted brother, basically. But he he. he I don't know whether he does know this, but I'd say he w- he was like a father figure to me. He's ju he's not like wildly older than me, he's probably seven years older, six or seven years older than me. But he taught me loads of things that like I suppose like a male influence in my life, it would probably be him, but our relationship is more like big brother and little brother. Yeah. And funny enough, when my sis uh, when my sister, when my mum moved to Cyprus when I was I think seventeen, sixteen or seventeen, and I was still at school and in the school holidays I didn't go to Cyprus. I I actually lived with his mum and dad and him so like he essentially they they were, took you in they basically did yeah actually like literally adopt me as well so you know like <laughs> they were they that that family had a, had a huge impact on me basically no. um i'm very grateful to him and linda and goth his parents for, for everything they did for me
0: yeah no, no i 100% mate. agree with what you just said then like when i was on that boat and i had nothing mm. right? i didn't miss like my nice watch you know i got a sponsored land rover discovery mate it's it was it was lovely, mate, That car, but I didn't miss it. Mm. You know, what I mean, I miss my like, mum, my dad, going around Sunday dinners, my yeah. grandma's. Like, I totally mean all that stuff is like so superficial. Yeah, and maybe now people put a bit too much sort of importance. Hundred percent. Yeah. It. So, you go into racing. What was your first first role in
1: racing? I was a. Um, so I wasn't very good at school. I was sort of always getting in trouble and never like that bad trouble yeah. was just mischievous basically um, annoying teachers so I never really wanted to go to uni and I think that a private school there's very much like because of their like they basically want 100% of people to go to university so at their report at the end of the year they go oh we've got a great record and I was the only one in my year that didn't go to uni and I think the school really hated me for that because it meant that they didn't have a hundred percent record um, Ollie Bell yeah. never
0: darken our door again
1: exactly and now I'm on TV, they actually asked me to come back and do a tour. Of, course, to, they yeah, of yeah. course they did. Of course <laughs> they did. It's like, you literally did everything in your power to get me out of this school and now you want me to come back. Um, so, so, yeah, I didn't want to go to uni and I, w- I knew what I wanted to do from a very young age. Like, I knew I wanted to be in racing or in sport, really, and on camera, radio, yeah. TV, whatever, broadcasting. So... I, I kind of got my head around the fact that if I was going to succeed, I'd have to start at the bottom, obviously, and work my way up. So I basically just supplied to as many people as I could for a job. And my, like that's when I was at school, and just thought I'll take whatever opportunity. I'll start at the bottom and, and, you know, work hard, be diligent, turn up on time, be polite. The things that, again, like it goes back to what you kind of get taught when you're a kid, right? Um, uh, Yeah, anyway, so I got a job as a... it was an editorial assistant was the official title the unofficial title was t-boy yeah at racing uk in the army we call that brew bitch (laughs) yeah that was me i make a very good cup of tea um so i got a job doing that and i mean I, i would have been on peanuts back then but moved up from somerset to london lived in a house with six aussies it was a sort of house share or whatever
0: how was that. That must have been an experience. Yeah, <laughs> I was
1: so green, like, I, and I looked really young at the time. But I remember, like, you're just excited, aren't you, to like leave home, start work, like bright lights. But you don't really think about it. Like you just kind of do it. So I never really like took a step back and been like, this is daunting because I'm leaving home or moving out of Somerset. And because I'd been to school like away from Somerset and been to boarding school, I'd kind of become, to a certain extent, pretty independent from quite a young age. So it was just exciting and then met some great great mates who are still dear friends of mine now um and to be honest and i've spoken about this recently with some friends those those days like again you don't have as much money or you don't get paid as much when you're at the bottom of the ladder as you do when you're climbing up the ladder but you don't really appreciate it at the time just how enjoyable those days are when you're like learning and you don't really have a care in the world um I look back on those days so fondly because of all those reasons I just said that it was very, very special and I learned from some great people. So it was possibly not the happiest time of my professional career, but I'd certainly look back on it like incredibly fondly because I just had a a really good time with great people basically and learned. Yeah, I know exactly
0: what you mean. like when you're young, sort of 20, you ain't got a mortgage or anything, no bills. (laughs) Your biggest outgoing is like £40 on a phone. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just amazing. (laughs) Um, you touched on it then. So who was um who was one of your mentors that stuck out stuck out for you and in that early
1: sort of when you're learning your way and, yeah. and trying to get into broadcasting? Uh I, I wouldn't have like had a mentor in terms of how I broadcast in terms of someone being like this is how you present or anything, <laughs> but um there's definitely people who had a bit a big impact on my on my life. The the first one, just to go back slightly earlier than that, was my history teacher, a guy called Philip Pedley, who was at Oundle and in that system as I was saying about you know everyone needs to get an A and go to university like he was the one that sort of allowed me to follow what I wanted to follow which was horse racing so when everyone would hand in their prep he would I would hand him tips (laughs) 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 and and he really like told me to he knew that I wasn't going to sit and learn about world war one for three hours (laughs) on a Tuesday but he knew what sort of got me excited and got my brain active and and the thing so and what so, lined
0: his pocket with money mate <laughs> as well. Making money
1: out of it. But I think as a teacher you have a responsibility to bring out the best in each individual student. Like I don't think the school system is necessarily ideal because it's quite generic. You know, it's like this is what you do for a hundred people aged thirteen. But that's like one person might not benefit from, from that. So you've got to be quite um individual I think in your teaching. And he was he was incredible at that. So I, I, I credit him with an awful lot of like, allowing me to not feel stupid for wanting to do what I wanted to do and giving me the confidence to go out and get after it. And, you know, essentially without that, I don't think I'd, without him, I don't think I'd be where I am today. So he was the first one. And then when I got my job at Racing UK, as it was then, uh, a guy called Jim Ramsey was the guy that um, gave me the job, basically. He was my my first boss. And he was he was incredible. Like he he was he was a, a terrific, terrific man. Um, I haven't seen him for many years, but he he gave a lot of people like me an opportunity, and invested time into us, and became a, like he was a mate and a boss. Mm. And yeah, uh, he gave me, he basically gave me an opportunity, right? And I think everyone who's starting out, no matter what industry you go into, ev- ev- basically what everyone's after is a, is a chance and if you get given a chance uh, it's then up to you to like either take it or mess it up right yeah. but he 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 gave me a chance and um i hope that he watches what i do now and his his un- understanding of the impact he's had on people like me and lots of people like me because he's shaped a lot of our careers and a lot of people in racing presenting would credit him with with that so yeah he he was like a mentor but as well as that well i also had a lot of I mean, there's a guy called Mert Carney, who's one of my best mates. He was a, an assistant producer. So he was, like, one up the ladder. We had great fun for, like, four or five years. You know, he, he my house actually, funnily enough, burnt down a week <laughs> before I moved to Australia. And myself, my brother, my sister had all our stuff in there. And, like, we literally had nothing. And he sort of said, come and, and I stank of smoke and <laughs> whatever. And he was like, come and stay with me. So there's things like that. Like, he's, he's a great, great friend. Um, and I suppose a mentor in a way because... I think your friends are your mentors in many ways, you know, you probably don't realize it at the time, but me and him just for five years when I was 18 to 23 or whatever before I went to Australia, left home, first job in London and did loads with him and just sort of learned from him and his sort of values and, and morals and how he approaches life. I think I sort of absorbed some of that. So I'm very grateful to him. I'd say he'd probably be more of a mentor than someone who's, you know, teaching me how to, take talk back or do a link to camera or whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine but I think mentors are that's like
0: a like a practical skill but like you said yeah, like yeah, morals yeah. and like yeah, core yeah, yeah. values
1: you can't really teach someone and and I think the friends that we all have are probably more yeah more mentors than with than we recognize I think or, or or certainly possibly say to them you know Simon from Somerset Mr Pedley Mert, you know these people that are very close to me Luke who's my best mate um, who I went to school with, you know, I'd I'd like to think that I hang around people who've got like good values and good morals, and hopefully I've learned from some of them and been able to teach some of them stuff as well. So, they'd be my mentors, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I I'd agree. I'd say all the boys, if you're listening, um, I think you've all got good morals, but Jesus Christ, you love a drink as well, <laughs> probably a little bit too much.
1: Yeah. Um. <laughs>
0: so you moved to Sky Australia. Mm. Did that have anything to do with your housemates, or how did that all come about?
1: <laughs> no, it didn't actually. I I think um. It was well, quite.
0: W- where in Australia did you move to? Uh
1: lived in Sydney, so I lived in Manly nice. for a few years. Before, so whilst I was um, sort of running, making tea, whatever you want to call it, editorial assistant, I played poker um, to quite a reasonable level. I was hoping <laughs> you'd bring this <laughs> up. <laughs> made a few quid. And um, I, I'd always wanted to be a presenter, because when I started, I was... Um, I looked about four, basically, when I started at Racing UK, so they couldn't put me on. I mean, me you don't look too old now, <laughs> mate, to be honest. <laughs> I, I was very old, surprised when I feel you said you were in your 30s. Yeah. Um, but they couldn't put me on screen, basically, because I looked like a, a child. A child. So, yeah. So I uh, had a few years, but but they, they employed me as a runner, whatever, editorial assistant, with one eye on me being a presenter. They yeah. knew that the, like, end goal was that, and I did a show reel screen test before I got my job, so they knew that I had I guess ability, but it was like a long, long play with them for them. So anyway, um, was doing quite well at poker and, and half thought about whether to do it full time, quit the job and play poker around the world. Um, but I sort of was getting close to presenting and, uh, that's ultimately what I've always wanted to do. And then I started presenting. So I did, uh, someone the standard story, but someone was ill. They needed someone to go to Salisbury last minute. I was around. So my first my first shift was at Salisbury when I would have been, I'd say twenty one or twenty two. I can't remember exactly, but pretty young. And that was covering racing, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was covering covering the the race day at Salisbury. It was like a Saturday evening. Like there was a big day in the like it was a like a. I mean, I love Salisbury as a racecourse, but it was comparatively like a, a non-event really in terms of like what was going on that day. So it was like buried away on Saturday night. There was like the Derby in the day or something. I don't know. There was a big race in the day, yeah. and it was like get Ollie to do it. <laughs> and um i remember doing it coming home watching it and being like i've absolutely nailed that <laughs> and then a guy called ian kavan who i think was producing was like you just didn't stop blinking the whole time and oh, i watched it back mate. again and like like that's you can tell when i'm nervous or a bit panicked when i'm on air because i blink loads probably shouldn't say that anyway yeah. and He's that been was blinking b- non-stop <laughs> since i walked into his um so anyway that happened. And then the next shift I did was like two months later. And then it was like three months later. Do you know what I mean? Like I was doing like one every two or three months because one, I was young, two, I was essentially just filling in for people. Um, And three, there was a load of really talented and still are really talented racing presenters there. So I was very much at like the bottom of the ladder starting my journey, but they were giving me an opportunity. Anyway, coincidentally, Sky in Australia, were launching a new international racing channel called sky racing world and um there was a guy who used to work with some of the guys i worked with called andrew lejeune who was based worked for sky basically so he was an expat in australia married an australian woman so when they were launching this channel they were looking for a young international racing presenter to be like the face of the channel and genuinely i think i was the only young racing presenter in the world at the time. so uh, I didn't have much competition, but they, they rang me up and said, Look, we've got this opportunity. Would you would you be interested in it? And I sort of ummed and it was again quite daunting going away to Australia. Um I was having a great time. I was doing well playing poker. Okay, yeah. Um and I was getting like the odd opportunity here or there. So I was like, Should I go? Like is it gonna benefit me? And I spoke to a guy called Lindsay Davidson, who's now like the sort of channel editor at racing He's like the Jim Ram the guy was saying Jim Ramsey, he's now like the Jim Ramsey at Racing UK. But he was again a producer at the time. I think he might have been a bit higher up. But anyway, he was he was kind of one of the bosses. And he was like, Look, the best thing you could ever do for your career is to go there because it's essentially free training for us, uh, at Racing T V. Uh you'll have a great um a great time for you personally. Um And you'll come back as a presenter, whereas over the next two, it was a two-year deal I got offered. Whereas over the next two years here at Racing UK, you'll probably present, I don't know, say, I think he said something like eight or ten shifts presenting. Well, you'll do ten shifts in two weeks. You know, I was presenting five nights a week. Um, He's like, just don't be an idiot, go. And... um, and if you don't enjoy it or whatever, if presenting's not for you, then come back and you can play poker when you come back, whatever, you can yeah. work in production, whatever it is. So so he sort of helped me make the decision to go. And then when I went out there, um, didn't know anyone obviously, but it was um it was a great experience and like it was the best learning experience for me. But it was also brutal because I mean not brutal in terms of like anything genuinely brutal <laughs> especially what you you lads have been through, but <laughs> but my hours were What, they beat you up as well. <laughs> my hours were um I think I was on air from nine PM till three AM five nights a week. So you're basically like jet lagged and when you were going to work everyone was coming home. And when you were coming home everyone was going to work. So you were kinda of like ships in the night with all your friends and and it was w- and, you know what I think I had Monday and Tuesday off so obviously everyone's working then. So it was uh. like a kind of a bizarre um, work-life balance, and um, once I got my head around that, and sort of just put my head down, just when it's just it's a shift and it's a slog, and but it's a great experience. Blah blah. Um, I, I got a lot out of it. I don't know whether I'd, as a 35-year-old bloke, ever do that again. But when you're 22, 23, you can get away with doing stuff like that and doing the graveyard shift and blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, I, I I learned a lot, and mate, I was to be honest. I know we were speaking about, oh, it's not about money and all that. So I was getting paid well out there. And I was 22, living in Australia f- for two years. Um, I had a nice time out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was living on the beach in Manly. Like, it was It was class, to be fair. Played football for North Sydney, so got some friends out at the football club there. And, yeah, it was it was fun.
0: Yeah, no, it's it, it sounds rubbish, <laughs> mate. Do you know what I mean? 22-year-old living in Sydney on loads of dough. Um, so you did your two years out there and then you came back. What job did you come back to when you...
1: Um, came back from I think, uh, um, Sydney Racing UK who I had worked with they yeah. sort of said there'll be a job waiting for you if you want to come back and I was actually going to stay in Australia a bit longer they initially said they'd extend or they wanted to extend the contract for a couple of years and I was going out with a girl out there called Cathy who um you know amazing woman a jockey she was very successful and doing really well she'd ri- just ridden her first group one winner and um just they like, love, oh, Aussies love their horse racing yeah, they've got m- the, the Melbourne Cup yeah, what's very that br- like a
0: equivalent to in the uk
1: well the melbourne cup i mean it's not a jumps race but i'd say in terms of scale and like how big it is in australia would be the equivalent to the grand national yeah in england like the there's a public holiday for people in victoria or melbourne cup yeah. and things like that it's, it's it's mega um so she just won a group one so we were going to stay out there for a bit longer and so so i said to Racing in uk i think they'd done their budget and they'd planned to have me back and i said actually i'm going to stay and then and then within like they'd offered me the job and then within like two weeks they took the contract away, so then I had to come home and I said to Racing UK, look, can you find a way of giving me a job? <laughs> it was all a bit of a disaster really. But they David Bellin, the guy that sort of sorted out the contracts at the time, he was quite high up. He was very good in, in accommodating me coming back even though I'd sort of undernarled and, and messed them around. Not intentionally, yeah, but yeah and then i came back as a presenter for racing uk so i, I think that was 2000 it was 2012 because the olympics was on when i came back and rather than being a presenter once every 3 months who made tea a lot and played the old poker match poker game whatever you call it um i was presenting i think about 20 days of the month i was a f- fully fledged presenter and what's interesting actually and this is what i'd say to like young people who are like daunted by like going away or you you know I think it's really really important for people to like expand their horizons um, see different cultures different parts of the world obviously that's like beneficial to like your brain but what was interesting is that when I started as a runner the like perception of me in the industry was like young kid Um, some people from outside of like the working environment was like, got a job because of his dad and his uncle, whatever. Yeah. Silver spoon. Yeah. Never had to work for nothing. Exactly. And like, yeah, so then when I went away, the way the industry looked at me was different because I'd grown up, obviously. Yeah. I'd Gone to, away taking his licks. Yeah, 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 started to look a bit older. So I wasn't like... Two years in Australia, mate, <laughs> I'll do that Yeah, you. No, sunburn. um Skin like a leathery Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I wasn't... Um, that you're like young kid anymore. I was like, s- given the respect as a presenter that I guess you probably need when you're a presenter, you need to have like a certain amount of authority, not just be like, who's this kid. And I think I went from being like, who's this kid, to being like, oh, Ollie's a presenter. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I think that that kind of helped me um, get established, but still learning, you know, as we as we go along. So, um, yeah, it, it was fun. And then and then Channel Four, who were covering the racing at the time. They lost the contract, so it then went from Channel 4 to ITV. This is, like I don't know, two or three years after I'd come back. Yeah, it must be, yeah, three years after i come back. And they wanted to, like, freshen up the the talent lineup or the presenters or whatever. Didn't want to use loads of Channel 4 presenters. So, again, like, I was in a a relatively small pool of people that kind of were in the running for it and was fortunate enough to get the ITV job. So that was kind of two or three years after I came back. So when I look at my career and everything I've done, I feel very, very fortunate because whenever like I needed, not a, needed an opportunity, but whenever like something came up, I was always in the right place at the right yeah, time. Yeah. Like I feel that a, a great friend of mine called Tom, Tom Stanley, who's a brilliant presenter. And you know, we've been friends for many years. He's a couple of years older than me, but started presenting a couple of years later than me. Like if he was me and I was him, he would be the IT, like. I'm adamant that he would be the ITV presenter, or he would have gone to Australia. Like, I think that my advantage was that I didn't go to university, and I probably had like a couple of years head start on others in my position. And I'd say Tom is probably a better presenter than I am. He's very funny. Like, it's just like a product. Well,
0: mate, you're selling yourself short there, Ollie. <laughs> You've come up with some good one-liners.
1: <laughs> the um, uh, yeah, I think I'm just like a product of of luck, basically, and there is obviously like an element of talent in there but it's mainly luck if I'm honest I think I think you're doing
0: a bit of a disservice
1: no 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 there, well, mate. I and think. obviously like I'm I'm not terrible at my job I mean
0: don't get me wrong I think I do think you're lucky mate you told me <laughs> how much you one won playing poker <laughs> mate that's not luck <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, speaking of poker so you're playing poker winning a load of dough doing well but you want to stick with presenting horse racing what is it about horse racing that you love so much that
1: that makes it your passion I don't know whether it's it is my it is a genuine passion of mine horse racing and I love that as a sport and I will answer that question but I think when I started out it wasn't like horse racing was just an opportunity for me to get into TV because I knew about horse racing and it's quite a niche sport so if you know if you have a good level of understanding about horse racing you you've you're going to get involved somehow basically So it was just an opportunity for me to get into TV. I never see myself as a horse racing presenter. I see myself as a TV presenter who does horse racing, if that makes sense. Even though like I know more than most about horse racing. So for me, it was just about, like I love all sport. And this Sunday, for example, I'm doing the FA Cup for ITV, which is a great opportunity doing football. I've done snooker for them, boxing, things like that. But like not a lot, like every so often I do other sports when they need someone to fill in. so yeah so that's a very long-winded way of me saying i see myself as a tv presenter who would present anything i think you get pigeonholed quite easily in horse racing because it's niche
0: i would agree because obviously doing my research on you yeah, typing your name it's horse racing yeah. horse racing horse racing won this much money playing poker <laughs> like you, yeah yeah you know so that's my misconception yeah, yeah, really.
1: yeah. well no i mean to, to be honest i that's what i do every saturday and and like every, you know i'm a horse racing presenter at the moment but um to answer your question what i love about horse racing is that i think it's got so many aspects to it there's loads of people involved in the sport so you get amazing human interest stories and you get real characters brilliant people are in horse racing so that's the, like human element of it and then you've got the like equine element of it which is like these incredible athletes that are you know uh, you have know, five hundred kilos animals that are like the most brilliant um brilliant athletes, as I say, and the drama that the races create like I remember the first time I went racing with my granny and granddad actually was at Leicester, and they had a horse running called Home from the hill, and it dead heated, and am I, I would have been about four or five at the time. can you explain what dead heated means uh you can't split them, so it's when um so they cross the line at the same time, yeah, so yeah, you've got two winners basically yeah. um. See Ollie, you just needed to dumb it down there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I and I remember going there and I was watching on the rail and I remember like the smell of it, the like noise of it, the like camaraderie that was there, the like feeling it gave myself. My granny was like a very sort of stiff upper lipped woman. Her um, her dad was head of MI6 during the Second World War and stuff like that. And um, can I get her on the podcast? Yeah, well, she's what dead I mean? now, unfortunately. Oh so you God. might struggle. But brilliant. <laughs> Make me feel this, big Ollie. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. We can ask her. Um, <laughs> anyway, you know, and just to see like what racing brought out in her and the emotions it evoked and stuff like that. Like I remember that so well. And then that feeling that it gave me then, I still have now. Like I've never lost that sort of childlike joy and emotion that I think fundamentally sport brings out in people. But for me, it's racing. And I've had moments throughout my career where I kind of forget I'm on air and remind myself why I love the sport and things like that. So um, I think it's a fabulous sport for lots of reasons. And I feel very lucky to work in it.
0: Is that um, when you said you forgot you are on air? Is that when the queen called you a lunatic? Yeah, yeah, that was fun.
1: (laughs) 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 I ran after a horse. Yeah, go on, please explain. So if anyone hasn't heard or read (laughs) Um, this story. So my uncle's a trainer, as I mentioned, and he had a horse called Big Orange. And the big race, like the biggest race of the week at Royal Ascot, is the Gold Cup, and it's on the Thursday, I think. Um, and I was doing the jockey interviews, so once they f- cross the line, I have to interview the jockey after the race. And it was a really close finish. And it was like one of those like heads up, heads down finishes, and my, it was my uncle's horse, Big Orange, against um, against the Aiden no O'Brien horse. I think it was Order of St George, and. Anyway, the co- I, I can't, because where I am is like past the line, so I can't actually see the finishing line. I can only just like, kind of see who's crossed the line first normally. But when it's a close finish, you don't really know, so you can only hear the commentator in your ear. And he went something like Big Orange has stuck his nose out or something and won. So I just dropped my microphone, start running after the horse, being like, oh my God, we've won the Gold cut, forgetting that there's about 20 horses still crossing the line. <laughs> I'm sort of charging after Big Orange, who's a lot quicker than I am. Get about 15 metres down and i go i'm not gonna i mean he's miles away i'm not gonna catch him now so then turn around and the camera's on me the whole time and it was like i think that what what i was saying about the sort of emotion of the sport i think what was your euphoria and like it wasn't scripted that it was clearly very genuine like i wasn't contrived doing it i just forgot what i was doing and my uncle's horse had won a big race and it was a dramatic finish and things like that um and I think viewers really connected to that um, and really enjoyed it just because it was like, it was, again, like I said, it was like that childlike enthusiasm for something. Um, and I don't really think we see enough of that, like, really authentic emotion in sport as much as we used to um, as a general point. But anyway, the next day, obviously, it was on the pap- in the papers, that image, and everyone used it, you know, everyone saw those images. And then the next day I was about to do an interview before a race and the Queen had a runner in the race, so she was in the paddock and um got a tap on my shoulder from um John Warren who's her racing manager, was her racing manager, and he was like someone would like to meet and I was like, Oh god, I've got to meet the Queen now. <laughs> not not oh I wasn't dreading it, but I was like, Shit, what do I do? What do I do I bow? Do I curtsy? <laughs> I don't know, you know what I mean? Shake her hand. <laughs> I was going, shit, I don't no one's ever told me what to do, so took my cat off, said hello, and she goes, oh, you're the lunatic that ran on the track yesterday. I was like, yeah, that's me, your majesty. And then my dad actually got ended and got really drunk and stayed in the car park because we had all, uh, the family had a big sort of celebration in the car park afterwards, which is quite common Everyone sort of After the race day, goes to the car parks, picnics and whatnot. Anyway, dad got stuck in, and so the next thing I said to her was, um, oh, you'll never guess what my dad did. Stayed in the in the car in the car park, and Dad came over at the same time. And he was like, "You haven't told her of you." I was like, "Yep." <laughs> He's like, "You bastard!" <laughs> so it was a bit of a shambles, the whole conversation. But I think she enjoyed it, and um, yeah, it was it was quite funny. So um, yeah, it was it was a, again, it was a very special moment. I've got a picture actually next door. We're obviously in my living room now, but in the office of me on the on the track looking back, and um, it's sort of something I'll, re- I'll remember forever. Basically.
0: Yeah. No. It's awesome. Well, the Queen knew who you were. And that's <laughs> epic. Um, tell us about the ride in a dream documentary, and the so when actually no. Tell us about the the academy
1: first. Well, the academy actually came from the do- on the back tell of the documentary. <laughs> tell us about the documentary so first. So just tell you about the academy, I'll have to tell you about the documentary. Yeah. Um, so basically, on the opening show, which is the show on Saturday morning that I present, um, by the preview of the race day, we played out a feature which ITV News did in London about this place called Ebony Horse Club in Brixton, and mum brother and sister live not too far from there uh, they live in Denmark Hill so it's like a five minute drive from from Ebony played this amazing feature out and it's essentially it's a right community center riding community center in the heart of Brixton I mean there's like four tower blocks around it and there's this small patch of land that almost doesn't look real does it it's mad yeah. honestly I'm genuinely blown away by that place because where it is like the horses are stabled in the archways under a tra- the train line, Brixton train station, basically. And um, like, it's mad to think that there's 10 horses there that the kids from the uh, local area look after, ride. They do away days. You know, it's it's, a, it's a, a huge and brilliant part of that community. And so once we played this feature out, I was like, I've got to go and check this out. Like, that looks wicked. And I'd never heard of it. And I'm sort of embarrassed about that. Like, it was five minutes away from where mum lives. I'd been in horse racing most of my life, and I'd say not many of us would have known about Ebony back then, but this feature sort of drew my attention to it, and then when I was there, I went just on a day off, went to say hello to everyone, walked around it, and then they said, would you like to be a patron, or could you be a patron for us, and I was obviously like very flattered and delighted that they asked, and I'd never been asked to be a patron for anything ever before, <laughs> didn't really know what to yeah. do.
0: What is a what even is a patron? I, don't, I still don't really know. <laughs> to be honest, I think it's just to help them get exposure and yeah, kind of, yeah.
1: I suppose, use my platform and profile to to draw attention to Ebony. And I thought, like, what can I do that will like have an impact, like make an impact? Um, I could do a car boot sale and raise a few quid selling my dodgy old clothes. I was going to say no one would want to buy your yeah, clothes. <laughs> <back>. <laughs> my club sat was here at a <laughs> sat here at an Arsenal <laughs> yeah, tracky a, track, bottoms. Track, a hoodie basically what I wear when I'm not on air <laughs> the whole time. Um, anyway, so and I thought, do you know what? I I don't really know where the idea came to me, but I sort of thought, why don't we do something a bit left field and make a documentary about a rider from Ebony? And if I can find them a spot in a horse race, then um, maybe we could do something cool. You know, um, I think again there's lots of layers as to why i wanted to do that i think racing is quite elitist i think when you go racing it doesn't accurately reflect the landscape of britain in 2022 Um, and i think that when you go to ebony and you see these incredible kids from you know a variety of different backgrounds religions races etc i think you look at that and then you look at a British race course in 20 well when, whenever it was 2018 and I was like this doesn't marry up to like totally agree
0: and it's it's about um opportunity I, I see something can uh, do you follow the athletic mm. so they put something out about so Lewis Hamilton you know he spent I think it was like 60 grand and um what's his name B- black air got strolled so his yeah. his son Lawrence and Lance you know he yeah. was he was paid they paid Millions yeah. for him to, for, for him to have a seat in a race car yeah. and I'm not saying you know you're not a good racer but you know someone from from Brixton is yeah. never going to get that opportunity
1: yeah uh, there are I totally agree with that and there are factors like to have a horse and to ride a horse you need land and you can't really do it Mate, I
0: see someone selling a saddle like the other day, for
1: £1,700. I was like, surely not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mate, it's mad. And like, ponies are expensive, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so that narrows it down. Now, a 100 years ago, most people lived in the countryside, I'd guess, and had horses somewhere, or new horses, whereas nowadays it's England's Britain is far more urban. Um, Less people have horses. Um, It's probably not quite as popular as it was to have a horse, etc. But anyway, I wanted to... Not change change the game would make it sound like I love myself too much, but I wanted to do something that made people at least talk or think or go, hang on, why has that not happened before or why, you know, do you know what I mean? So I had this idea to 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 train someone up to ride in a race. The funny enough, the lunch I was at yesterday, the Petro Sullivan lunch, was I always go there and I'm very lucky to be asked by Goodwood Racecourse on their table, and I was at that lunch. On my left was a guy called Adam Waterworth who's essentially the boss at Goodwood. And on my right was a guy called Rod Street, who was uh, is the chief of Great British Racing, which is like a promotional tool for racing. And I had this idea with my mum, well, I spoke to my mum and my brother about it over dinner like a couple of days before. And then at that lunch, I said to Rod and Adam, I said, I've got an idea. I don't really know how to go about making it happen, but I can find someone from Ebony. I basically need a spot in a charity race, and I need someone to pay me some money to not me money, but pay for the documentaries that yeah. we can, uh, so we can we can broadcast this. Now, sorry, just to
0: interrupt. What's a charity? Does charity race mean you can't bet on it?
1: Charity race is essentially a. Uh, I should know the answers better than do. Like a, a, dude. Friendly? Like yeah, a so friendly, yeah, football friendly, yeah. So, so it's so. for like non. It's for like. I don't want to say amateur jockeys. There are amateur. It's for like non jockeys. Yeah, Yeah. But you can. You, they So they'd, they'd probably be. I don't know. Ten. So like in the documentary,
0: year. there's like TV personalities, um, like Spencer Matthews. Is, yeah, Vogue yeah, Vogue Williams is in it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So it's you. You put on a race. Yeah. The jockeys raise money for charity. Yep. Yeah. Everyone claps and goes home. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> they're not real jockeys as yeah. such. But you still have to be a very competent rider, and it's a hell mate, of an achievement. Mate, I wouldn't do yeah, it, mate. Exactly. Like, I was, it's, it's terrifying. terrifying.
0: I was watching the documentary. I don't even like going near horses, <laughs> mate. Really, like. Yeah. I've seen like videos of people kicked in the head and I'm like they must be dead. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. 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 I would not do it they're, like you said they're huge. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so yeah. you sat with the um sort of the head shed of goodwood and you're like, "Right."
1: Yeah, so my brother's friend from school Tom Bolwell is a director basically a documentary maker. Um and his friend is Mattia Re- Reniger and they so so I got them on board. I said, "Look, how much roughly would it cost?" We put a treatment together. Told them the idea. And it was all very like, co- not cobbled together because there was a bit of thought that went into like what we were going to make. But it was a bit like me having an idea on a Tuesday and by Friday I'm like, shit, I've got to make a documentary now yeah. because we've got a spot in the race. We had funding for the documentary and I think it sounds like a lot of money but to make a documentary, as you can imagine, is quite an expensive process. I think we raised 100 grand for it um, and that's essentially a year's filming, which is in relative terms, not a lot, um, you know, it's a lot of money, but it's it's not for what, yeah, for, for a documentary. What, for basically. what you're doing, yeah. So it's kind of low budget, kind of cobbled together. And uh, when it started, I said to Ebony, I said, look, this is the idea, but the stipulations for the race, you have to be over 18. <laughs> um, and, yet, and it's a female only race. So when I said to Ebony, I said, Look, can you give us a rider who's over eighteen, female, and up for the challenge? There was only two that were, um, essentially over eighteen, basically. So one of them lived in Newmarket and was already working in the racing industry, which was terrific. But I said, we, you know, that's not really a story to tell if someone's yeah, riding yeah. out every day. The other was Khadija, who was doing her A levels, just turned eighteen, she was doing Ramadan, um, but this real force, like when we met, she was the only, like, we put all our eggs in one basket because we only had one basket to put our eggs into. Um, She's, like, obviously I've watched the documentary, mate. Like, she looks like a force, do you know what I mean? Like, uh, she's unreal. really confident, yeah. you know. And that's the thing as well, like, having a camera stuck in your foot, forget the riding side of it. Like, we were unwittingly, like, so reliant on her being charismatic, yeah. engaging, interesting, articulate, all these things and we stumbled across you know a gem yeah one of the greatest people i've ever met you know she's she's an absolute diamond she's a great friend of mine now but the journey that we went on which i don't think we were able just because of funding and time for the documentary it was only a short documentary to really tell but like the the reality was like when she started she'd broken her back she was she she failed her first assessment which obviously we mentioned in the documentary but we weren't she, able to film it
0: she broke her back she fell off her horse fractured
1: or... her coccyx yeah um like at this just before we started filming for the documentary so like you know there was all these things that happened the horse was retired and like i i even though i've spoken about it a lot and obviously very passionate about it i don't do it justice to like the actual carnage that we went through with, like, getting, like, for people who, like, watched the documentary or watched the race, and they're like, oh, well done, Khadija won it. Like, no one will understand the level of, like, ups and downs we yeah. went through with it. Um See, so in the documentary, I know she failed her first assessment. So how long did you have to wait until after that assessment till the race? uh After the first assessment? Yeah, yeah. It, everything was quite soon then, because once she failed the first assessment, I think it was, like, two months out from the race yeah she obviously needed to improve her riding to, to race um so we then put her like into the race she basically lived at the racing school for like an intensive She was doing her a level so she didn't really have much riding experience going into that first assessment so it's kind of unsurprising that she failed but then she did i think a three-week intensive course at the racing school passed her second assessment but she'd never galloped a horse until two days before the race like The race was on Tuesday and I think the first time she ever galloped a a horse, ever, was on the Saturday before at Charlie's. So like for her to even get to the race was monumental and then the horse that she was riding, it was a bit like Torquay playing, I don't know, West Ham in terms of like relative terms because there were horses that were rated sort of 20 pounds better than hers. So it on paper it had absolutely no chance of winning like forget how good Khadija was going to ride or whatever Yeah, like,
0: cuz in the it talks about that it's, it was
1: the others were rated rated at an 80 and it was like 66 60, yeah i mean the i think the highest rated horse was like 85 66 and there's like that is honestly like premier league against not premier league like cha- an 85 rated horse would be like a championship horse yeah. right but it's championship and it's like non league basically yeah. um
0: so and almost it, like an arsenal you know, sort of down here and then a Liverpool <laughs> up here. Mate, well, sure. yeah. <laughs> Not at the minute, but uh, yeah, yeah. Like, You can flip that around now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: The, um, but what I really loved about the whole thing was that it was like myself, my brother, Tom and Matthew, who I'd mentioned and a lady called Naomi Lawson, who I'll mention when I talk about the Academy in a moment, but it was, and Khadidra, obviously. It was like, there was such a small team involved and we were together from, I don't know, whenever we started filming, say March until August or whatever. And then it became this, like, massive story. So this whole, like, for six months, we were just living in our own little world, like, going about our business, making this documentary. Became great friends with (coughs) Khadija's family, her brother Abdus, her dad Ali, you know, who were... Ali, the father, was quite sort of sceptical at first because he had reservations about how he would portray his daughter and things like that, which I understand. He probably was quite cynical about the media. And, again, I understand in some aspects why he would feel like that. So ge building a rapport and relationship with him was really important. So this whole like project was very small but very close knit. And then when it transpired that she was going to be the first hijab wearing jockey and she was going to be riding in the Magnolia Cup and she was from Ebony, it became this like genuinely like global story. So we went from being like a small team to like everyone wanting a piece of it. And it was mad really because None of us started with like that as our intention. We just wanted to promote Ebony, basically, and go look. This is a great place with amazing kids, and look what we can do. And um, and then she won the race, and like I mean, like it was all a bit of a blur. But it was the, it genuinely that was the greatest day I've ever had on a race course because the pride I had for her was. I mean, I I, I rarely cry, um, but I was in floods of tears afterwards. Like I, I will never. I don't have children. But I will never feel something like that again until I do. I don't think because, like pride, like I've never even thought I could feel. Basically, just what she'd achieved was was remarkable. And funnily enough, I don't know whether I've ever said this or I'm allowed to say it, but they're actually turning the documentary into a feature film now. Oh, no. So yeah, which is great. oh mate,
0: that's epic. And the documentary's class, mate. Like obviously, I'm watching it, and <laughs> like she says, she touches on it. She's like, she turns up and she's got this horse that's rated 66 obviously i didn't mm. have a clue what that meant. <laughs> i just knew it was it, bad and then she like goes and she goes and wins it and yeah it, it, like you can see and she's obviously says like she's in floods of tears and she's crying, and like it's amazing you know what she um she talks in the documentary she says you know i turned up this race course she was like people from my culture mm. don't go to the horse race yeah and like she's right like when i think when i've been to ascot goodwood newbury it's you know you don't see anyone in a hijab do yeah you? you know you mainly white and I interviewed um uh Commonwealth gold sprinter, uh O. J. edaburan Yeah. And he said, you know, having those positive role models is really important to him. Definitely. And it's good to see her, you know, still, you know, doing that and she can be like this role model for people from like her background. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and when she started I was like, what do you want to what do you want to get out of this? And she was like, oh, you know, I just want some people to be inspired by what I'm doing. And then a really lovely moment actually was my mum's a primary school teacher in Catford, which is south London, and um we did a talk after the race at like an assembly for the for the kids there. And when we walked in there was like two young girls, Muslim girls, both wore hijabs, like ran over and started crying because they'd like met their hero who was yeah. Khadija, right? And for them and I would never speak on behalf of their culture or indeed Khadija but I would imagine that there's not loads of people that young Muslim women can look up to in sport from historically there's obviously a few but to have like an icon and imagery used now of like Khadija wearing a hijab achieving an amazing thing as an 18 year old woman um, I think is genuinely really inspiring for a lot of young girls and boys actually out there and um, without knowing it she sort of we went on this journey and she became this role model to a lot of people older and younger than her and that's quite a big responsibility but she's handled it like better than anyone I know could have ever handled it yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean without sort of being trained or like told what to do and then the the impact it's had within the sport of racing and again not to be like too like self-congratulatory but it's had the impact that I wanted it to have in racing because now you look at the Magnolia Cup and it's a far more diverse lineup of people riding in that race. Indeed, Ashley Wishard, who is uh, a young black woman, won the Magnolia Cup this year. Whereas prior to Khadija, I don't think it was a diverse lineup. I think now the imagery used to promote British racing, Khadija's face is on a lot of that, which when you walk down the high street and you see a billboard of racing, far more accurately ref- reflects the world we live in than the imagery that was used before and things like that which make small differences but have um, a big impact long term so I'm very proud of of what we achieved but documentary was good Uh, Khadija won the race that was good the imagery used is different but as I was saying at the very start um, it's very important not to sort of just sit back and sort of tap you know pat yourself on the back and go wasn't that fun to make a real difference Uh, I wanted to um leave a legacy from this incredible story um so my brother actually came up with the idea to set up an academy um have a scholarship the khadija Mella scholarship and help young people like khadija get into the sport because um we obviously gave khadija a chance and things happened in order to enable that to happen but unless we were to do what we did and set up the academy i don't know whether it would happen to other people like Khadija all the time, whereas now there's something in place that hopefully allows youngsters from inner cities, from um, underprivileged backgrounds, as you mentioned, to get into the sport. So again, that's something I'm very proud of and we have into the second year now. Um, the first year, scholars finished obviously last year. I think four of them have been through the racing school now foundation course. Amala, who's was our, one of our first year scholars, she's kind of head girl at the racing school She's going to be a, a, an amazing jockey. As Shane works for Charlie Fellows. You know these are amazing stories of people from the academy that are now working full time in in horse racing, and that's kind of what we again what we wanted to achieve. You know, a pathway for these youngsters who don't normally have an opportunity in racing to have an opportunity and thrive and excel, because there's some incredible children out there, really talented children who don't have the opportunity. They can't afford the opportunity, whatever whatever it might be, and so for us to set that up again it's it's something the the whole riding a dream thing from the documentary and khadija success to the academy is something i will i don't think i'll do anything in my career that makes me prouder than that basically
0: no it's absolutely epic and you (coughs) have to give people that opportunity they wouldn't have it is you know it it, is special mate like and you should be mega proud of yourself Mm. um because you know you didn't have to do that that's what I always think about things like this. You didn't have to go and put yourself mm-hmm. out. So with the academy, how does it work then? Do do the kids sort of apply and then, you know, yeah. you've only got a limited number of spaces, but sort of explain sort of the inner workings of it.
1: So we have three courses. We've got the scholarship, which I guess you'd 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 go onto the scholarship with a like a, a relatively reasonable level of ability in terms of riding. We've got a residential week, which is um a week long course. And that you'd be like a probably less talented rider. You probably might be like entry-level riding. And then we've got a non-rider week as well. So no people who have never seen a horse in their life, basically, right. but might see racing or the industry yeah. and think that's quite a good opportunity. People they have like, a look at it.
0: seen a horse and like, nah, don't want that <laughs> <Yeah>. smoke, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that
1: 500-kilo beast can stay <laughs> yeah. over there. So the, um, the scholarship is a week at the start of the year and a week at the end of the year and then a weekend a month in between. So it's not you're not there for the whole year but yeah you essentially apply um the application form you'll f- explain how how advanced your riding is whatever the, then we go and sort of see them see the, the 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 students or whatever so you are still like you're quite involved then oh yeah, in the, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, and funnily enough we've got a week at epsom next week so i'll be there um so we check their riding ability to make sure so they're not lying basically <laughs> Someone who goes, yeah, I can ride. And then you put them on a horse so they don't know which way to face. <laughs> um, uh, that would be me. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then they, they get on the course. But uh, I'm pleased we, the year one, we didn't have that non-rider week, but I'm pleased we've added that because I think, again, like we were saying, I don't think being on horses or around horses is that common for many people anymore. So... Um, they might go there, they might hate it, right, they might go, this was really boring and I didn't enjoy being around horses, I find it hard to think that they would, but fine, at least they've tried it and they might love it and then they might go, I want to work in racing and then we have more people coming into the sport, into the industry, etc, etc, so um, I'm glad we did that, Um, yeah, and then hopefully we can keep keep growing, but year two and I think we, year one we had 36 kids, I think this year we'll have about 55 coming through and obviously next year I hope to get more but it's yeah it shows that there's an, and we have we have that's 55 like oversubscribed as well so we have more people applying so it shows that there's like there's people out there that want it do you know mm-hmm.
0: what I mean no mate it's, and it's an, it's an amazing thing and I think should, like I said before you should be really proud mate that's a really good sort of conversation we just had there and i like to finish the podcast um, with a bit of advice you would give to a young Ollie about if he was starting out uh, um, in, in broadcasting and now he's set up this amazing academy? <laughs> <laughs> um, what
1: would advice? advise? I think just to like... That's a good question, that. Um, well, I think it's really important to be... I'd like to... Um, I don't know whether I would give myself this advice because I think I've always actioned it, but yeah. I think it's always important to remind yourself to be authentic and be who you are in can encompass a lot of things but I think through various stages of my career there were times when I thought possibly like thought I had to be presenting in a certain way or behaving in a certain way possibly to please, please others and that's not necessarily the worst trait because that's quite a nice endearing thing if you want to make people happy and do things for others but at the end of the day like when you look back on your life and your like career I'd much rather look back on it and go, at every stage, I was exactly like true to myself and who I wanted to be, rather than going, I'm a bit disappointed that that year I tried to present like that. Or do you know what I mean? So, for any youngsters getting into the industry, like the biggest advice I'd ever give them is be authentic. Because I think when you watch TV or whatever, I think it's so obvious when people are like not being who they are. Go on, name names. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, I think it's just quite obvious to see people who are like acting or yeah. And I think, especially in this day and age, I think the more authentic you are, the the better received it will be. Basically, be authentic, be
0: yourself, be mm. true to yourself, mate. Good advice. Right, guys, that is the end of today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please could you follow, like, and subscribe as it really helps grow the podcast. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy that, mate? Yeah, terrific. Cheer, mate. Yeah, thank you awesome, very much. Mate.
1: Thank you so much. Cheers.